Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Joel Selvin, whose latest book is Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels, and the Inside Story of Rock's Darkest Day. This, I guess, is the 16th book that you've written or co-written? It's something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Also the author of two books by yourself, Summer of Love and Here Comes the Night. Joel Selvin, for many years, starting in, I guess, 79, was it, uh, was the music critic at the Chronicle. I started at the Chronicle in 1970. Yeah, I have that too. You were the assistant <laughs> to John Wasserman, right? Yeah, John invented me. People don't remember, but he was an amazing uh, critic. John was an amazing guy, uh, tortured, but uh, probably a genius in his field. He was obsessive and uh, compulsive, uh, narcissistic, and uh, just lit up rooms when he walked in and was extremely exacting and demanding of me as his assistant. Throughout my career in the newspaper business, I was consistently and continually guided by, you know, parameters that John had sketched out for me. In terms of a book like Altamont, what exactly did you learn from John that still made an impression all of these 40 years later? Well, I'm not sure that John's guidance would apply to my work in book writing as much as it was the nuts and bolts of the newspaper business and the daily exactitude that that required. The discipline that I developed as a newspaper writer undoubtedly had a great deal to do with shaping my work writing books. God, I mean, you know, 900-word articles are a bit different than 100,000-word manuscripts, but John was so specific about how reviews should be written, how deadlines should be met, how mail should be handled, how you should talk on the phone to people, uh, what your relationships with news sources were, all that kind of stuff I was instructed on in detail by John. So some of that still is there when you're doing an interview. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and you did many, many interviews for Altamont. You did an interview on KPFA with Kevin Cartwright, which if people are interested, they could find on kpfa.org archive. Go to the talkies for August 17th at 11 a.m., and you can listen to it. It's an hour in length and includes a number of people who called in. And before we get into this itself, the call-ins, I understand from Kevin that a number of them were people who went to Altamont. Yeah. Did you learn anything new from those phone calls? I had interviewed many people who had been in the audience. That was kind of the least useful part of the uh, research. At one point, I envisioned including their stories, but it just didn't work out to fit into the narrative. But I, I had a good sample of the experiences, both you know, people who were down front where it was really difficult and people who were back on the hill where it wasn't clear what was going on at all. Yeah, one of the gals that called in described herself as the poster child, and she said she had her photograph taken in Scanlon's magazine. I went, whoa, were you wearing a blue jumpsuit? And she says, yeah, my mom thought my boob was falling out. I says, yeah, I know that photo. I know that photo. They're standing on front of the stage, she and her friend, they were 16 years old, she said, their hands are on the stage and they're looking over their shoulder where somebody is being beaten with pool cues. And the look on their faces is horrifying. Let's talk about Altamont. I went to Woodstock. You and I are about the same age. Mm -hmm. And I was at Woodstock and it was peaceful and a little bit scary given the size of it. And, you know, I mean, I was at the back end, but you could still see the stage. And it was peaceful, and I had a great time and, you know, came home on Sunday so I could go to be a camp counselor on Monday. Oh, God, I miss Jimi Hendrix. I mean, really. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Then came Altamont on the West Coast, and at first, as you report in your book, Altamont, Joel Selvin, they kind of tried to call it the West Coast Woodstock, but very clearly it wasn't. It was uh, the Chronicle on that Monday and then Rolling Stone that kind of punctured that particular balloon and turned it into the That's horror correct, show that yeah. it was. Yeah. I also would like to modestly dispute your contention that Woodstock was as peaceful as you maintained. That was one of the mythologies that was spread wide and far at that point. Uh, and it certainly was an extraordinarily fortunate event. But do you remember... They burned down the hot dog stand because they were complaining about the high prices. And for crying out loud, they broke down the fences and didn't buy tickets. They turned it into a free concert. Nelson Rockefeller, the governor, was thinking about sending in the National Guard. They were one bad slip-up from that thing turning into something worse than Altamont. Well, I remember when we got there, we did not expect. We drove up, and we didn't, from the city, and we did not expect to be stuck in traffic and have to abandon cars. I mean, that was one thing. Actually, the I- The Newark Freeway is closed. <laughs> <laughs> we were on side streets and in fact, a whole bunch of us came together and a few of us left to fend for ourselves and get our tickets and get in and save a space for everybody else. Little did we know that this place was so big that once you walked away, you were never gonna find your friends again. Mm -hmm. And you wind up sitting there basically starving because there was nowhere to get food. The lines were ridiculous. And we walked in, and it's like, what about our tickets? Oh, everything's free, man. Woodstock was a calamity ready to happen, and the producers were super rushed to get it together four weeks ahead of the date. It was almost impossible for them to complete construction. They'd moved the site four weeks ahead. To Yasker's farm from clear, uh, what is it, White Lake? Something like that. Altamont moved in 36 hours before the concert. There were 100 toilets. That's for 300,000 people, city the size of Fresno. There was no running water. There was no food concessions. There was no parking. The biggest crowd that had ever been to the Altamont Speedway was 6,000 people for a demolition derby. And if anybody drives over that pass on the freeway now, it's always cold and too sunny. And that's where they have wind turbines because yeah. the wind is up there. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine what it was like sitting around there at night waiting for the concert the next day. 36 degrees. Really? Yeah. December 6th, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's why the place smelled of burnt creosote. Because people were knocking down Tore down fences, fences and barns, and, and they were burning garbage, uh, uh, you know, old potato chip bags and stuff, and, and, and it, it had a terrible odor. I mean, when I hear about or read about Altamont, because we all did over the years in various capacities, not just in your book, Summer of Love, but elsewhere, mm -hmm. never got a sense that the place smelled, but it must have smelled horrible. No, that was part of the whole hell of the thing. Uh, the, also, the light uh, in the early morning was very pink and gloomy. Uh, it was a bad day astrologically. The moon was in Scorpio. The weather was just terrible. It was too hot and dry, and then it was too cold and windy. Uh, the conditions. I mean, you, you know where Altamont is. It, it's, it's like on the edge of the Central Valley just where 580 turns into Highway 5. And if you on that exit from 580 to 5 and you go around the curve there, if you look over your right, you can see the speedway. That's where it is. Really? You can actually see the speedway? Because yeah, I've looked. I, I, no, I, no, you can see just as you're going on, on that exit. The speedway is about 500 yards to your right. You can see the stands and the, the buildings. And it's still there? Yeah. It's been closed for years. Joel Selvin, let's talk a little about how you came to write the book before we go into some of the horrors that you encountered <laughs> along the way. In your interview with Kevin, you talk a little bit about stumbling across it uh, and even writing something on the 10-year anniversary. And then, of course, in your book, Summer of Love, you talked about it. But what brought you back to Altamont after all these years? Well, I left the paper in 09 and decided to see if I could make a living writing books. And 
the the first thing I tried was this autobiography of Sammy Hagar, which was not an elevated effort by any means, but it was super successful. It was a number one New York Times bestseller, and I thought, mm, you know, I, let's keep going. So four or five books later, I've got a relationship with an editor at HarperCollins in New York, and I'm trying to think about, like, what kind of books do I have the resources for right here around San Francisco? What are the stories in my backyard that, that I can dig up and... and batting around with Matt Harper, uh, uh, I mentioned Altamont. And to me, that had been such a part of my background and so much of the lore. I'd just been inculcated in it. So I was kind of a nerd to the, you know, like, well, what do you think? And and he got excited. And I started to see when Matt's enthusiasm that this was really a book, uh, especially when I have a publisher of a major publishing house encouraging me. It's like, okay, this is a soft landing. Matt was a big Rolling Stones fan, he's a younger guy, and immediately he saw what this book could be, and he dragged it out of me. I went in this book, one kind of writer, and it came out an entirely different writer, and, and, and this is the experience I had with this particular editor. When you say that, and he expanded it, did you just think it would be the story of the festival leading up to the festival, rather than the fact that the postscript is such a big part of the story? No, I knew the postscript would be a part of it. I sort of envisioned it along the lines of an Eric Larson book about a hurricane uh, that hit Galveston. You know, storm gathers off, comes to town, storm happens, they clean up. That seemed like the Altamont story. What Matt Harper saw in it was a really valuable social history, and he made me bring out the whole context in which this event occurred, the underpinnings in the counterculture, the factionalization that was going on in the underground, and the uh, deteriorating drug scene. A lot of like ancillary things that as a newspaper reporter, I'm so used to devoting myself to the strict narrative that Matt had to sort of like tap me on the shoulder and remind me about that part of it. That part of it plays a key role in the fact that the counterculture may have always been at odds with itself, but of course, if you were in it, you were not thinking that way. But from the beginning, there were issues between the musicians, the political people, the drug people, and of course, the Hells Angels. It's so true, Richard. The factions existed. They just didn't recognize the sort of inherent conflicts that were there. There was a lot of innocence around all this and a certain amount of ignorance, too. But there's also, you know, there's a beautiful picture in there of how people can get along and how the world could be a better place also. The divergence, the distance between that thought and reality was always sort of an issue for the hippies. Altamont itself, to give the brief rundown of what happened... The Rolling Stones were coming to America. They wanted to finish up with a free concert, which was suggested by the Grateful Dead. They began setting it up, and gradually it deteriorated and fell apart, started in Golden Gate, wound up at Sears Point, and then at the last minute wound up at this racetrack. And, of course, Woodstock had something to do with it. One of the things I didn't know was that the Rolling Stones and the British groups kind of felt out of it because all the action was happening in San Francisco. That's something, you know, from my perspective in New York, they were as big as the San Francisco bands, but they didn't think that. They were kind of like in awe of this new hippie morality. Well, you got to remember that the British music scene has always been very suffused with a sense of fashion and trendiness. In fact, in London in 66, they had really taken a global lead with that kind of stuff. And to find themselves in 67 to see that sort of undermined as Sgt. Pepper came out and groups like the Jefferson Airplane and Big Brother and the Holding Company began to emerge from San Francisco. I mean, this was the new cool This was the exciting idea, and groups like the Beatles and the Stones found themselves like uh, at a distance wondering. I mean, Paul McCartney came to San Francisco in May of 1967. He borrowed Frank Sinatra's Learjet and flew in, walked in unannounced at a Jefferson Airplane rehearsal at the synagogue next to the Fillmore. 
And they went, wow. And he's got a test pressing of Sergeant Pepper. They took him back to the airplane mansion opposite Golden Gate Park. They all smoked a big bowl of DMT, the working man's LSD, and listened to the test pressing. And he flew out the next day. And of course, everybody knows about Harrison coming in August and touring Haight-Ashbury and having a horrible time. But this is just what I'm saying is these guys saw in something in San Francisco that was authentic and, and genuine and not made up like their kind of fashion. And it resonated with the whole world at that point. In 1969, when the Stones came back to the United States after three years, the biggest new groups were all out of San Francisco. Big Brother and the Holding Company had a number one album. Creedence Clearwater Revival put out three albums that year. Sly and the Family Stones, Santana. All these were new, exciting bands coming out of San Francisco with fresh, vivid sounds. Well, the, the other thing, and you don't mention it in Altamont, is that the Rolling Stones had actually had to come back from a flop album, uh, Satanic Majesty's Request, which just simply didn't work. Yeah. Then they did Beggar's Banquet, and they were back on top, but they were straining at that They were point. broke. Uh, the entire Altamont situation... You dig down real quickly, and you see this is all about money. In 1969, the Rolling Stones didn't have any dough. Keith Richards wanted to buy a house. He needed a 5,000-pound down payment. Didn't have it. Their manager, Alan Klein, had bottlenecked all their royalties and just wouldn't pay them. So they were advised to form a company separate from their association with Alan Klein for the purposes of touring the United States and go pick up some dough in the United States. Now, they get to Hollywood. They haven't been in this country in three years, and the rock scene has just exploded. And they're starting to drink this in and figure it out. I mean, that fall, Led Zeppelin was the most exciting band in, in the country. They were touring the United States, playing two-and-a-half-hour sets with a half-hour drum solo. The Stones were thinking, well, they'd do a half-hour set and, you know, get off the stage. And they had to be explained that the rock scene had changed. And they caught a glimpse of their stature in this and the opportunity that yawned in front of them as they started doing these concerts and seeing the kind of hysteria and impact they were having in the United States just was intoxicating. So they get to New York at the end of the tour. They fix a deal with the Maisels brothers, Albert and David Maisels, to shoot the film. And, and this is the last minute. They shoot the New York shows. There's one other show in Boston. And then this free concert. Now, the free concert's a whole juggernaut that's been going along since they get to Hollywood, and it's just messed up. And Jagger announces it the day after the Golden Gate Park thing evaporates. He says, we don't know we're going to have it, but it's December 6th somewhere in San Francisco. Did you know all this going into the book? Did you know that the Stones were, as you say, at the end of the book, the real villains? So it was obvious that they were responsible for the whole project. They built in a deniability. They created a ring of associates that weren't part of their operation, and those were the people that were actually responsible. But they were calling the shots and, and making the plays. And you knew this from your research on the 10th anniversary? It's just obvious from any kind of sort of sorting through it in any authentic, okay. uh, uh, gimlet-eyed way. The thing about the Hells Angels, not to jump ahead, but they'd been painted as like textbook villains in this from the very beginning. Their attitude was they were duped and played for patsies by the Stones. And I think that's a lot more accurate than uh, the other viewpoint. And that came from more recent interviews then? As I started to think about this and talk to people and get the lay of the land, uh, that was clear to me. I, I spoke to Hell's Angels that were there and uh, people that were associated with the Angels. Here's the thing. So in all the past coverage of this, those guys always the Hell's Angels. That's all. There's nobody named. So I wanted to give these guys back their names because not all of them misbehaved that day. Some of them were as appalled and aghast at what happened as anybody. Well, now, there have been various stories about how many were actually there. About 40. You say that there's about 40. Yeah. So you can actually name them. How many of them are still alive? Very few. The actuarial tables have been real tough on the angels. 
Sonny Barger is still alive, the uh, president and founder of the Oakland chapter, but he's a throat breather, so he's not doing many interviews. There's a few guys that were there that are in the witness protection program. They're not available for interviews. <laughs> uh, but most of them are deceased. Before we go into some of the other details, there's a guy, this kind of weird guy, John James, yeah. who was the Stone's spokesman slash non-spokesman. Right. Do you ever track him down? Oh, he's dead. Oh, he is. Yeah, his name is John Ellsworth Chase, and he got out of a lengthy term in prison for mail fraud earlier part of this century and died about 2006. He represented himself to the Stones as working for Chrysler Motors and told him that he could get them free cars. He represented himself to Chrysler Motors as working for the Rolling Stones and told them that he could get them an endorsement. So he was a grifter. Oh, total con man. He was eventually uh, unmasked at the White House uh, where he posed for photographs with Rosalind Carter as, in a Santa Claus outfit uh, representing some bogus children's charity. This was the guy who, in some sense, along with um, Rock Scully and... Uh, Sam Cutler. And Sam Cutler. These were the guys who basically set this thing up. So the backstage politics of this is all completely goofy, and it's you know kind of spelled out in the book. James attaches himself to the Stones early in Los Angeles with no official connection. He's not on their payroll, but he's just worming his way in. Sam was hired in London as the tour manager, and he's in, they just put him into the grinder. Rock was in London visiting with Keith Richards one night and getting high, and he was the one that said, oh, I could fix it for you guys to play a free concert in Golden Gate Park. Now, Keith Richards probably looked at this guy not having too much experience with San Francisco hippies and thought, well, he's the manager of the Grateful Dead. I didn't realize, you know, Rock was, you know, a hippie. He's a whimsical guy, and he was probably just blowing uh, hot air. But Keith took that to heart and said, yeah, you know, the Grateful Dead can fix this for, you know. These are the three sort of posts that the thing was started on. And at one point, James asserted himself and took over the permit process, which ended the Golden Gate Park opportunity. Rock had the Parks and Rec Board lined up. James went to the mayor's office. Joe Alioto was no friend of hippies. That was dead immediately. In your estimation, would that big concert with multiple stages that they were originally talking about, could that have ever happened? Would it have happened if James hadn't been there? Well, that was Emmett Grogan's idea, and Emmett was the guy from the Diggers. He, he was quite fanciful thinker. I'm sure that they could have pulled off a concert in the polo fields. I'm sure that Rock's idea would have worked a Jefferson Airplane Grateful Dead concert with a surprise special guest. We would have had the advantage of infrastructure, police protection, public transportation, and most importantly, it would have left the concert in the jurisdiction of the San Francisco chapter of the Hells Angels, who were by far and away the most civilized bunch. They had very close associations with the bands and, and, and were well known to those people. So, in essence, he screwed it up so that it had to go to Sears Point and then the Stones decided they wanted all the money from the, from the movie, which is why it wound up at Altamont. Correct. And, and let's get the timeline on that. The concert was announced for Saturday, December 6th. Tuesday was when they found Sears Point. Thursday afternoon was when they found Altamont. So there was only 48 hours at Sears Point. Yeah, but they had the stage all built and the sound <laughs> system all up. And the original lineup included the Grateful Dead, but as it turned out, the only people who actually played, and this is, from my perspective as an East Coaster, I was thinking, oh, lots of groups. There were only like five or six groups. There was Santana, the Airplane, which was a disaster, the Burrito Brothers, a short set by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and then the Stones, and the Dead, who were supposed to perform, just didn't. Well, the Grateful Dead showed up, and... There's a scene in the movie where Michael Shriva Santana walks up to Phil Lesh and Jerry Garcia as they got off the helicopter and tells the Hells Angels had beat up Marty Ballin. Garcia says, wow, bummer. He was blasted on a, a dose of uh, STP, which was a heavyweight designer, psychedelic, the Valsley's uh, devising. But they get backstage and they find Burt Kennickson, who worked for them in getting their permits and, and in their office. Uh, he was a nonviolent 
peace activist, and he'd been thrashed with pool cues and 60 stitches in his head. He had this bandage around his head like a turban, a cowboy hat stuck on top. And then they saw Rex Jackson. Rex was their lead roadie. He was the chief enforcer of the dead. He was a big, threatening, bad guy. And when he saw Animal, the uh, Hells Angels, his real name was Paul Hibbets, who beat up Marty Ballin, not once, just twice, and beat him up in front of the cameras on stage, then beat him up again backstage, Rex decided to take him out. And Animal rabbit punched him and cold cocked him. And uh, Rex was carried off stage by four people. He had two black eyes. So the dead show up, they see Burt Canickson with his head in, in bandage and Rex walking around with two black eyes. Whoa, this is bad news. And Terry the Tramp, who was a very close friend of theirs, he worked with Owsley as a guy that carried a bullwhip around. He was he immediately swarmed over these guys and acted as their bodyguard, keeping snapping his whip to keep people away from them. And they took one look at all this and went, uh, don't think we're going to play. <laughs> and they took off. Uh, the backstage sounds like a hell show with people wandering around on bad drugs. Another aspect of this, of course, is there was bad drugs and no hospital, nothing to set up to help them, and it was all temporary. There were eight doctors and four psychiatrists. There were some people from the hog farm that worked with the psychiatrists in the so-called bummer tent. I spoke to three of the four psychiatrists. The fourth is not with us anymore, and they... uh, were interns at the time, and they'd had considerable experience with drugs, and they couldn't believe what they were seeing. And they also worried that given the remote place that they'd set up the medical emergency services, that this influx that started first thing in the morning and just overwhelmed them was only the tiniest tip of the iceberg. I remember at Woodstock because... I didn't have food with me, and I was there for three days getting food from other people, getting drinks. I was not dosed. What's clear in Altamont just six months later or five months later is that anybody who was given a swig of anything could have been dosed. There was, and a, possibly lot was. Of, there was a lot of that going around, a lot of it. And you also have to understand, Richard— that the entire drug scene had devolved by 1969. Two years before, in the summer of love, the people who made LSD were zealots. They were they were missionaries, and the chemists went to great lengths to see if those compounds were stable. Two years later, it had devolved into a criminal enterprise, and uh, people that were manufacturing these drugs were putting things like strychnine in it, which is a poison that lengthens your trip, or methamphetamine which is overstimulates every user. The other thing that's going on at Altamont is these psychedelicized people were also guzzling Red Mountain wine. And that's, for hippies, was chemical and, and, and cultural heresy. Uh, you didn't mix alcohol and psychedelics. And the medical symptoms of that are erratic outbursts, violent behavior. So uh, there was a kind of bad stew, a kind of mass toxic psychosis going on up audience was all on drugs, the angels were all on drugs, the musicians and the production crew were all on drugs. And at the same time, there was this horrible smell in the air, and the air was cold. Cold, no, and no bathrooms, and people going on the side of the uh, field, and also the crowd was very intensely crushed, and not friendly, not in a good mood, a lot of like elbows in the ribs, a lot of real sort of semi-hostile, aggressive behavior. And once the angels started beating people to get them away from their bikes and control the front of the uh, audience, tough guys that saw that going on would come down to take on the angels. And I'm given to understand the angels never had any problem with those guys, but they kept coming. And you describe how, I mean, pretty graphically, what happened to one overweight fellow who was high. He's in the movie, somebody who'd taken some methamphetamine-laced LSD because he took off his clothes. That's a common symptom of methamphetamine LSD. Oddly enough, there were several of those around the audience. He was also drinking wine. I saw a photograph of him with a wine bottle held upright, and he's just guzzling. He was aggressively dancing, sort of like, you know, stomping on people under the guise of ecstatic dancing. And every so often, somebody would shove him away, and uh, he'd, he'd get a hurt and, like, disgusted look on his face. But he made his way down to the front of the stage where so this is just an obvious offense to the angels. And sure enough, they started beating him. 
So Bert Kanickson, this guy from the dead, who's a nonviolent activist and knows the angels well from his days at the Carousel Ballroom, jumps off the stage into the middle and says, no, 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 all men are brothers. This is a peaceful day. Don't hit this guy. And the angels backed up and they split apart and the guy went out through the gantlet of angels. And as he got to the last one, he reached up and punched him in the face and then ran off into the crowd. And the angels just turned on Bert and they beat the hell out of him with pool cues. There's a very famous photograph on the DVD cover of Gimme Shelter of a bunch of angels with upraised pool cues. And if you've seen that photo, you've seen the photograph of Bert Kanickson getting beaten. One thing that becomes clear in Altamont, Joel Salvin, is that when any of these musicians came off the helicopter or however they came in by car, the first thing they said was, I basically want to get out of here. I mean, it was it, it degenerated that much. Pretty much everybody I talked to felt the bad vibes as soon as they got there. I hate to lapse into that kind of language, but not everybody did. Some people had a great time. The sound system, which was pieced together at the last minute, wasn't that effective. So in the far reaches of the crowd, you know, the sound was kind of intermittent and not all that clear. So a lot of stuff going on in the stone set or even the airplane set was garbled and didn't really get across. Take uh, George Lucas was on the film crew that day. It was his first day on a professional film crew. Uh, he was there with Walter Murch, who would be a future Oscar winner himself. His first day on a film crew, they were going to experiment with a thousand millimeter lens that Lucas had he wanted to check out. So the Maisel sent him up to the top of the hill, and he spent all day fussing with this finicky lens. And they got exactly one shot in the movie. It's the final shot. It's a really wonderful shot of a pan across all these concert goers stumbling out of the thing in the dark that comes to rest on the moon and and then they cut back to Jagger and the, getting up from the new viola right. but those guys Walter Murch and George Lucas drove home that night talking about what a wonderful day it had been and how great the show was and how wonderful the crowd and did you talk to uh, Walter about that I did I did that was kind of interesting to find that Walter Murch and George Lucas were actually there. Uh, let me ask you, um, in this research, right, you knew a lot of things. What new piece of information did you get for the book that you didn't have any awareness of before? Well, there was quite a bit, nothing super major. I did know about the vehicular manslaughter case. But let me tell you, finding the survivor was truly a score. Uh, I hired a private investigator to work on this, Scott Dudek out on Walnut Creek, who as an Alameda County Sheriff's homicide investigator closed the Altamont cold case in 2006, and he subsequently went into private practice. And Scott was super helpful. He did not know about the vehicular manslaughter case. Two this was at the end. Yeah, two people were killed when a uh, LSD-crazed uh, concert goer stole a car and drove it through the exiting crowd at up to 60 miles an hour and crashed into a campsite. Two other people were very badly injured. The cops apprehended the guy for a minute, and then he ran away. It was in the paper the next day, and then it just disappeared from the lore. And when Scott went looking for records, there were none to be found. So I'm under the impression that they didn't really give that too much of an investigation. But Jim McDonald is a fireman down in Santa Cruz, and Scott found this guy. And... Uh, I went and got his story, and it, uh, it is a uh, just gorgeous piece of narrative in the book. Jim Mack was flown out of Altamont in a medevac, and he showed up at Livermore Hospital with no vital signs. And they managed to bring him back to life, obviously, or I wouldn't be able to interview him. And his mother came up that night to um, pick up his personal possessions and check in on him, and, and, and they gave her a blanket that he'd been wearing around it while uh, he was at the campfire, he said one side of it was the outline of his body in blood squirts, and the other side was tire tracks. Where's he living now? He's in Santa Cruz. He's a, he's a fireman and a surfer and just a great guy. He had a fabulous time. Except for that. Except for that. That's Mac, though. He's that kind of guy. You also talked to the doctors. You found all of these people. Is there anything that surprised you either in a negative or positive way. I mean, it's hard to be surprised in a negative way when you're walking into this knowing the entire thing was a disaster. I think the surprise 
was just how uh, constant the barrage of violence was and how it was not just simply located with the Hell's Angels that had been previously described, that it was in the air, it was in the crowd, it was in the stars. Baron Woolman, the Rolling Stone photographer, told me about getting up that morning in the camper that he was staying in and going out to take a pee. And as he's standing there, he hears a dog barking and watches this dog run down a rabbit and tear it to pieces with his jaws. And good morning, Altamont. <laughs> That's in the book. We try to find some kind of overriding meaning as if Woodstock was the good side and Altamont was the bad. But in fact, everything that could go wrong did. It was like a perfect storm of yeah. bad concert. That is something that uh, I did marvel at. And you asked what I was surprised is, is I got to be conversant with this. At one point I realized nothing went right. Nothing. They didn't get a lucky bounce from the get-go. There is one thing that did go right, and we still don't have never heard it. And you have, and you make mention of it. It's a big part of the, the book, is the quality of the Rolling Stones set that oh, yeah. day. And it is recorded, but apparently never released. No, it'll never be heard. I heard a 16-track uh, mix that was done by Bob Matthews of The Grateful Dead. He was their engineer that did Live Dead and Working Man's Dead. And he set up a 16-track recording. You can only imagine, you know, how difficult that was. Uh, there's funny stories behind all that. There's funny stories behind setting up everything that day. But he, he recorded it and played it for me in his home. Uh, astonishing. So many things in the audio record that just are, uh, are stunning, like uh, the screaming during the song so you can hear it over the music. And then when the song ends, there's no applause, but the screaming continues. At one point, after Hunter's Killing, uh, which takes place during the fourth song, Under My Thumb, uh, the whole thing just breaks down. I mean, you know, they, they flopped his body on stage. Everybody saw it. I don't care what they said. And uh, nobody knows what to do, and, and people are wandering around. And Mick Taylor, the new Rolling Stones, says, well, let's play the new song. And that Tuesday, they had been in Alabama recording, and Jagger says, yeah. So for the first time, the Rolling Stones played in public Brown Sugar. And the concert comes right back to life. Now, violence continues through the thing, but at this point, the Stones just are going to power through it. You can see the jaws set and, and bury themselves in the music. Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman just locked down. Uh, Keith Richards and Mick Taylor, their guitars are like gears. And Jagger singing so sincerely, so convincingly. None of that kind of cartoonish uh, mm. caricature vocals that he so often lapses into. He's powerful. And it's like a, they're surrounded by these huge menacing figures. They're totally out of control. And, and remember, uh, there's no spotlights on them. The spotlights never arrived. So all there is is 50,000 watts of backlight that drenches them and the front rows. These guys can see up to 50 feet in front of them, clearly. Now, you can't usually when you're on stage because spotlights blind you. Right. But they're watching all these beatings and all this stuff and uh, absorbing that energy and channeling it into this music because they're musicians. That's what musicians do. And when you're hearing this, even if you didn't know context, let's suppose you didn't know context and you're just listening to the second half of the after the fourth song, would you say it was one of the best Stones concerts you'd heard? The recording I heard was one of the most exciting live records I've ever heard by anyone. And the Stones have several candidates out for that already. Right. Uh, there's a 1972 bootleg from Brussels that I'm particularly fond of. Uh, the get your yayas out ain't too shabby. Uh, right. You know, I mean, these guys are a live band, and I'm not sure that they've ever played any better than they did at Altamont. Why is it because solely because of the circumstances? Is there a rights issue involved with getting this thing released even somehow? Well, I don't believe that the Rolling Stones would ever approve a live Altamont album. Because of what happened. Oh, it's a, it's a uh, albatross on their neck. Even if it's the greatest concert they ever did. 
I don't think they can see that. You know, it's interesting. One of the reasons there was never a book about Altamont, I'm convinced, is because Gimme Shelter, the documentary film, was such a, a presence in the culture. And it's a great movie. It's a terrific rock documentary, but it's not a journalistic event. They use a lot of editing out of time. They change uh, things that happened to serve their story. And if you follow their movie, the concert ended when Hunter was killed. But even that, you have to remember, they were partners with the Rolling Stones in that movie. The Rolling Stones were going to have to sign releases. And whatever you know, candor they were uh, able to manifest in that movie had to have been ameliorated by the fact that the Stones were looking over their shoulders. And let's also remember that the film itself is so embedded in this uh, uh, controversy. I mean, the reason they moved from Sears Point was the film film and the money of the film. And that's not clear at all. There's these scenes in Belli's office where he's yelling at, at sheriffs. And they're not making it clear what they're talking about. But what they're talking about is, well, we're moving this thing because these guys want some money. Bill Graham's role, he was so dead set against this. If he had budged an inch, would it have made a difference? No. No? No. Bill was just starting out in the business in those days. He was not the powerful person that he became. Uh, In fact, uh, he produced the Rolling Stones concert on the tour at Oakland Coliseum Arena. That was the first time he worked in a big room. He'd only been at the Fillmore before that, and sometimes if he had a big show, he'd move down the street to Winterland. That was about a third or a quarter of the size of the Oakland Coliseum. So that was his first show. And he didn't get along with the Stones. Uh, He got in a fist fight on stage during their first show that night with Sam Cutler and uh, had a really ugly confrontation with the band in between shows. The Stones were no fans of his, and he was no fans of the Stones, and he didn't have that kind of influence or power, and he wasn't even that experienced a producer at that point. So Bill's uh, antagonism toward the event was just, you know, blowhard stuff, which he did all his life. And one of the things I found out that I was kind of shocked by is I spoke to David Smith of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic to see, you know, who did the medical on the Altamont, and he said Bill Graham called him and told him not to. And since Bill Graham through all the benefits that supported the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, he backed off. Now, I wonder about the ethics of telling a medical person he is not to work. That's the sort of guy Bill Graham was, by the way. Really? Not a good guy. In some respects, in some weird respects, you know, we could call it the day that the music died because, as you point out at the end of the book, the Stones were never relevant again. The airplane broke up. The Grateful Dead were fine, but they changed completely. And these might have been the results of Altamont. Don't forget the Hells Angels. And the Hells Angels became the bad guys. Oh, they went into a tailspin. They, they were washed up in four years. Sonny Barger was in prison. The rest of them were in witness protection programs or dead. And the Stones were never relevant again. You say that that's kind of because of this. Uh that's a. Uh, I was thinking when you said that, guys. That's kind of a you know uh, a sharp statement. I, I didn't quite say that, did I? Uh, yeah, like yeah that, I guess yeah. I did. What I said was that uh, "Let It Bleed" was the peak of their career, and that if you couple the three songs that they recorded in before Altamont, which was "Wild Horses," "You Got to Move," and "Brown Sugar," that that was sort of like the end of a certain period for the Stones, and and whatever happened after was somehow on the other side of the bell curve. Uh, I mean, Sticky Fingers is a great album, and uh, Exile Main Street is a, a worthy record. Uh, after that, you know, the records get less interesting, and the band seeps into greater caricature and more of a, of a public phenomenon. To me, the thing that the Rolling Stones lost from their music at Altamont was a kind of fearlessness that had so vividly informed their early music. Uh, their willingness to toy with dark images and play with kind of uh, uh, pushing these kinds of envelopes just disappeared. And and I I never felt that kind of ferocity in their music again. And the airplane wound up breaking up, and that might have been partly attributable to what happened to Marty Balin? Well, they dumped Spencer Dryden, the drummer, almost immediately, and his story of leaving Altamont's a pathetic, sad one. He was gone two months later, and they brought in a big, hard rock drummer named Joey Covington, and that meant 
that the uh, uh, the sort of faction in the band that was represented by uh, Jorn McCalkinen and Jack Casty, the bass player and guitarist, had sort of gained a little bit of control over this. And Marty was marginalized. Marty was beat up so badly. He downplays it, but his associates say that he, it changed him tremendously. And he left the band by October completely disappointed and, and disgusted with what was going on with the airplane. And it was a group that he founded personally. And the airplane did one more album after that. Bark was terrible. Yeah. No, they, they were awful after uh, Volunteers. Volunteers right. was, their, was their current album at Woodstock, at Woodstock and Altamont. And that was the last good one. Yeah. Oh, it was a great record. And it was a big hit. Because it was the first one. Surrealistic Pillow, Baxter's, Crown of Creation, the live album, and Volunteers. Bless its pointed little head. What a great album. Wonderful record. Yeah. And, of course, The Grateful Dead, after that, began moving into more country-ish and changed as Uh, well. The Grateful Dead took Altamont on the chin. It really disturbed them and upset them. And then the next month, they were all arrested in New Orleans I'm not sure that getting arrested bothered them so much, but it meant that Owsley was going to go back to jail and his bail would be revoked. So they lost this really key member. And that's also right about the same time they discovered that Mickey Hart's father, Lenny Hart, who they'd uh, hired as manager, had stolen all their money and disappeared with it. So they go into the studio in February to start recording these new Garcia Hunter songs. I mean, that's a shell-shocked group of individuals who have determined that they're going to mend their own fences, heed their own people, and stay out of this mainstream pop scene. They're going to work within their community. And that was a huge decision for them that obviously led to them going down this path that created this giant deadhead following and uh, was really a, a, a very wise and human direction for them to go in. But that was all sparked by this terrible traumatic period where following Altamont. Then let me ask you, Charles Sullivan, these are the people who were there. Do you think Altamont on some level, because there were many, many rock concerts and festivals after that, do you think Altamont on some level changed other groups and how they perceived it, or was it just for those people who were there? Well, those people were uh, PTSD. Uh, I mean, that's what that was. That was was post-traumatic stress disorder. Altamont lived all through the rock scene. Everybody was aware of it. Everybody knew what it was. Its symbolism was so rich. Uh, in front of a, the Rolling Stones, the Hell's Angels kill a black guy who has a blonde white girlfriend standing next to him. I mean, it's just uh, fraught with uh, r- social, racial, and, and, and primitive symbology that is just resonated at the time. And continues to. I mean, you mention Altamont now to people who weren't even born, who were born, you know, 15 years later, 20 years later. They all know who, what it was, just like they know Woodstock. Altamont is a word like Titanic. Joel Selvin, you left in 2009, The Chronicle, but you're still, you know, you still look at the music industry. Obviously, this is an entirely different interview, but a quick question. Where is the music industry now? It seems that it's completely diffuse. Nobody can make money because everything is free online. And the idea that there might be a super group that people care about musically as well as in terms of the pop culture seems almost to have disappeared. Oh, uh, rock is dead, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, the the uh, Pop music today is all uh, urban hip-hop. Uh, there's a, a kind of underground rock movement, uh, but it's not very vital. Um, the most prominent stuff is called alternative rock, and you've got to say, well, alternative to what? The cultural heft of uh, the pop music movement has really petered out. The corporations took over in the 80s. Uh, they applied corporate marketing methods to their uh, uh, process and, and, and pretty much drained most of the creativity out of it. Then the media changed and the internet emerged and that was a battle that the record industry lost. I mean, I think they could have embraced Napster and, and, and the whole story would be different now. But what I'm told, and I'm not the expert anymore by any means, is that 
uh, at this stage, the streaming services represent about 10% of the CD market, of the record market of the 1990s. If and when the streaming services have a 100% of that market, of the same amount of the people who are buying records in the 90s, that the payments will be commensurate with the kind of royalties that they were receiving during the boom years. So all these guys whining about uh, how little they're making on uh, uh, Spotify or whatever, uh, you know, this is an emerging technology. It's changed the whole uh, landscape in terms of distribution, royalty appreciation, all that kind of stuff is just thrown to the wind. It's going to have to be resorted. I don't know about you, Richard, but you know I'm I'm a, a music nut. I have a massive library, and I haven't pulled a CD off the shelf in a year. I, I've I've migrated entirely to listening to files on computers, and uh, I, I have no doubt that the rest of the world will too some diet soon. Uh, so this is real. This is now. Uh, that's what's happening now. How to make money in the music business? I don't know. Publish. Music publishers aren't complaining. I haven't heard any music publishers are, you know, starving. Uh, last summer, I interviewed uh, Edwin Outwater, who is the who is the summer uh, conductor for the San Francisco Symphony, and I said, "Classical music dying." He said, "What's weird is that it's made a comeback because of all of these services. People now make their mixtapes that include classical music." That's true for me. I, I, I have no Debussy uh, CDs or, or records because I acquired those with a specific purpose in mind. But now the Debussy is just a dial away, and, you know, sometimes I get up in the morning and feel like a little romantic, you know. <laughs> and so what, what he said is young people are listening to classical music like they haven't in years. No, that's true. It's changing. It's all changing. So I kind of like the services. Uh, I don't think they're very good. Uh, I, I, I told Bob Lefsitz that Spotify was like Federal Express. It's not very good, but it's still the best. Joel Selvin, you finished Altamont, and you're finishing up on your tour. Are you working on another book? Oh, always got stuff in the fire, and, and, and yeah, I'm in the middle of uh, doing some research for something that may turn out. Uh, one final question. Following the, um, the book coming out, have you learned anything new that you wished had gone in the book? Oh, good question. No, I can't think that I have. Of course, as soon as I finished writing the book, like that whole part of my brain just went dead, right? I like no longer am on the, uh, the have the prey image for that kind of information. And, and uh, you know, doing newspaper articles, I always marveled that, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd bone up and become an expert on this subject and enough to write 1,200 interesting, knowledgeable, authoritative words. And a week later, you couldn't remember what it was. <laughs> as somebody who reads all of these books, I walk in and I know as much as the author, and then two hours later, <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> David Perlman, the 90-something uh, science editor of the Chronicle, spoke to uh, the day we left the paper. No, this was not that speech. It was his 90th birthday. And he said that he just loved doing newspaper articles because every one of them was like a postgraduate seminar. Whoa, now that is a 90-year-old. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.